You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. This is Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Two hours in the books. A couple more left to go in the final show for our week. Jamie, we're just awaiting gold medalist yes. and <laughs> best athlete in the world, greatest athlete in the world. Damien Warder, he's about to uh, join us. We're going to talk to him. Uh, I do like our the fact we've been able to talk to three Olympic medalists over the last three days. It's been pretty, pretty exciting good. to hear. Well, it's exciting to hear from each one, one of them because they're all very different. Like Evan Dumfries from Richmond, and he is in the 50-kilometer race walk. And for him, his training didn't change too much during COVID because he could still get outside and walk, right? You look at Julia Grosso, obviously there were probably some challenges or there were some challenges in getting the national team together and practicing together. And she was down at the University of Texas. Like, there's there's a whole lot of things that had to go into training and gearing up for these games. And then you've got Damian Warner, who... He does need a lot of inside stuff to be able to, you know, or even outdoor stuff, but he needs the ability to practice the pole vault. And you can only do that at certain locations. (laughs) You know, you can't just go out and just find a track and do a pole vault. Like, you actually have to go to a specific place. And if that's not open, how do you train for that? Like, I want to talk to him about what kind of challenges he did have over these past uh, year and a bit trying to gear up for these games and be at the peak physical condition that we saw him in. Yeah, well, and just beyond even training for it during COVID, I mean, just training for the decathlon in general, like, how does that work? I don't know. (laughs) It seems to be incredibly complicated to train for that many different events at once. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, It's one of those things where I've, I've talked about this leading up to the games, like, he's not just a runner. Jamie, you've got to do jumping events. You've got to do throwing events. And the fact that, like, in the long jump, he would have won the bronze medal in the individual long jump. Like, that's how good he was at that event. And to be good in the decathlon and win gold and cross the 9,000-point mark, you can't just be good at all of these events. you got to be great at least a bunch of them. Yep. And then, yeah, good at the rest of them. Yeah, pretty good at the rest, right? And and we know we saw he he excelled in the sprints and the jumping events as well. And, you know, maybe some things like... Uh, discus, shot put, javelin, you know, are not as strong for him, but he's still good enough to, you know, never really be threatened to win the gold medal and, and finish, as you said, over 9,000 points and um, setting an Olympic record, I believe, for it. One of only four people to finish over 9,000 points. So, yeah, you can't get to that level by only being good at a handful of the events. You have to be incredibly, incredibly well-rounded, which is what makes his accomplishment so impressive for me. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading an article, and I want to talk to uh, Damien about this. Uh, hopefully, we can get him on. We're just waiting for him to call into the show. Rio Gold, Rio gold medalist uh, in the decathlon, American Ashton Eaton. He's one of the athletes that have hit the 9,000 mark. He's actually done it twice in his career. And going into Rio, he was like, he was the heavy favorite. Like, no one was going to beat him. Um in the decathlon and he's he's trained with Damien Warner that's you know points throughout their career before he retired they would train together and he said he was watching the race in the 1500 meter event was the final event that they had in the decathlon and he's thinking to himself okay I know the pace that Damien can run at he's off pace he's like dude what are you doing like you got to pick it up because for you to hit that 9,000 point mark you have to hit a specific time and that time being four minutes and 33 seconds and it's like he said as soon as he saw him hit that final lap, he's like, okay, yep. I know he's got this in the books. Well, it was – it was, and that's another thing I want to ask Damien about. If Hopefully we can get him on the line here momentarily. But what's going through his head, right, as he goes into the final stages of the 1500? Because he's not only, you know, trying to lock down gold, but he's chasing 
records, right? Olympic records, getting up over 9,000. And the, the burst of energy and adrenaline he must have got in that final lap, again, at the end of this incredibly grueling competition, stretched out over multiple days, it's the last event, the last lap, and he is, he looks like he just started out, really. <laughs> he has so much energy, and he's making up so much ground on the other competitors. And then there's that incredible picture right after the event, mm -hmm. right, where everyone else who was in the decathlon is kind of exhausted lying on the ground, and he's standing up. <laughs> victorious and just to have the stamina and and again it must be at least a little bit easier when you know you're on the verge of accomplishing something great like he did but to have that stamina after all of those events and all of that uh exertion it's incredible yeah absolutely um Jamie, when you look at his accomplishment compared to, uh, you know, what Andre de Grasse does, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I do, I do think that, yeah, you voted for Andre de Grasse to be the most memorable moment prior to Canada winning gold in the women's, um, women's soccer, but I do think that we'll appreciate this accomplishment even more when we look back on, yep. um, on what he did. Oh, no doubt about it. I, I think this is something that... You know, decathlon it might not necessarily jump to the top of mind when you think about Olympic events, right? Because we always focus on the 100 meter. We focus on the pools, you know, some of the team sports like basketball and soccer. But I think now that in Canada we have a gold medalist in the in the event to call our own, it's it's made a lot of people look closer at it and, you know, think about exactly what goes into it and how incredibly well-rounded and proficient as an athlete you have to be. And I do think this is one that will stick out for a lot for a long time for a lot of people because just the nature of the sport is so demanding. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the amazing accomplishments that uh, Canada did at these games. Um, it looks like we might have to push him back a little bit, Jamie, uh, just based on what his yeah, schedule is. He's a busy guy. Today. Busy guy he, these days. He is a busy guy. And I think I was listening to him on the fan 590 in Toronto this morning. He's like, yeah, after I won gold, I had about two hours of sleep because of all the media requirements that he had to do. And I'm sure he's a busy guy. Um, and, you know, I'm sure he's a busy guy that he's uh, being pulled in a bunch of diff different directions. So hopefully we can get him on momentarily. I do also think the fact that he did this at the age of 31 is something to be impressive of. Yep. I am I have no problem. Shout, saying shout out to the over 30 <laughs> club for sure. I agree. I'm no problem saying I'm 38. I'll be 39 in exactly one month today. Note to Jamie. Remember that. All right. Um, we'll see. We'll see if I do. <laughs> I don't know if I will, but I'll try. Uh, but it, like... I, to stay in that sort of shape is just, I don't know. I just, I, I can't even wrap my head around it. Really? You don't think you could go out there and do a decathlon <laughs> over a couple uh, of days? <laughs> Jamie, do you want to pick one of those events? You I, I am laughing because I know I could not. <laughs> you, trust me, Karen, you would probably beat me in every event. I, I was terrible at jumping events in um, high school. You know, when, you know when you had... I always hated this. Like when you're back in elementary school or middle school and they made you do the high jump and you switch from like the scissor kick to the back flop, right? I was like, first of all, I couldn't do the scissor kick. Then I couldn't do the back flop. So it was like, this is just embarrassing for me. I'm basically just jumping onto the mat. Like the bar is literally at the mat level. And then you go and you're going to do like the long jump and all these things. And I'm not a runner either. Like this is why the beer mile is going to be ridiculous for me to do. But I guess if there's any events that I would be... It'd have to be the running events, like just because I, I know say, event well, well, eventually I, say, I could you're finish not, it. You're not a jumper. You're not a runner. So are we talking shot put here? Like javelin? Oh, what's God, what's no. your what's your event in the decathlon? Uh, I guess we'd have to do the hundred meters because it's quick. Yeah. Right. I like, actually, I actually think, and this is not because I'm like good at them at all, but just because they're the least cardio 
demanding that the throwing events would be my best bet in the decathlon. Mm-hmm. Just because cardi- my cardio is truly, truly pathetic. Right. Um, it's, it, well, it's one of those things where you played baseball, though, growing up, right? Did you play baseball or throwing? I did play to- baseball, yes. Okay. So at least you have that knowledge of throwing. Like, I didn't play throwing sports growing up, and this is why I'm terrible at sports that involve, like, an implement that is extended from your arms, like tennis and hockey and baseball, um, pickleball, you name it, because of the fact, like, I never played those sports growing up. I played a sports where you played basketball or soccer. So literally your goal was to not keep your eye on the ball at any points in time. And then I'm trying to translate that to, you know, sports like baseball or tennis where the goal is you're supposed to watch the ball immediately hit your racket, right? Or the baseball or golf. You're supposed to keep your eye on the ball until it makes contact. And I'm like, I just can't wrap my head around this because I grew up with sports where you're like, nope, you're actually not supposed to look at the ball at all while you're playing. That's too funny, actually. I've never thought about that, the difference between soccer and baseball, right? Where one, you're, yeah, right? keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball, and the other one, uh, you're, you're not supposed to do it at all. I will say I had a very um, uh, kind of proud uh, proud papa moment the other day. I think we were watching baseball, and a player swung and missed, and my daughter was like, keep your eye on the ball. And I was like, That's, That's amazing. Right. That is exactly <laughs> right. You've got it. You've got it. She's been sitting around with dad for yes, a very long time. Yes, she's been time. listening to me yell at the TV. <laughs> That is awesome. I love that. I got to say, is she starting up to be the age of where you could put her like in Timbit soccer or in some sort of T-ball or something like that? Is like she getting close to that age? Seems like we just lost Jamie. Yeah. Uh, Growing up, it's one of those things where like if I was to put my kids in sports, I'd probably put them in everything because of the fact that like you want them to choose what you are, uh, what you're doing. But Jamie, sorry, we have you back. Uh, Well, I was just going to say my my daughter's about three and a half. So we're just starting to dip our toes in the water of kind of organized sports. We're doing a uh, like an introductory T-ball class on weekends right now. So that's a lot of fun. But yeah, we're, we're, we're getting into it a little bit slowly, but surely. I will say this. When is T-ball and, like, baseball for kids in Vancouver, BC? When, like, what months are those? Because this is going to be uh, lead to your... Be, it would be, like, kind of late March, early April through May. That's, that's when I played, okay. into early June, maybe. So kind of end of the school year, I, I seem to recall. So as a parent, you're going to be like, I want her to play that sport over soccer because soccer's in the winter months in yes. the yep. lower mainland and the winter months suck with a lot of cold and a lot of rain. And could you imagine, I, I've seen some of our, you, you do have friends, I have friends with, you know, parents standing on the sidelines in the pouring rain. They're going like, really, what are we doing with our lives right now? I know this is our children and it's like five-year-olds running around. So it's not even really even something no, you can enjoy No, it's not even watching. like you can enjoy the game. No, you're just <laughs> right. standing there huddled, clinging to your coffee. It's raining. It's Saturday. It's it's cold yeah it's no. early in the morning you're like you yeah. had to get up for this you had a couple last night and you're like oh i gotta get up and watch my kid play soccer in the pouring rain and be freezing it's weird because in in manitoba we play soccer from i think end of april till june and then they take a hi- hiatus at least when i used to play and then you play your playoffs in september it was the weirdest thing because you think about it these kids you know for me it was uh, these girls are we go away from the summer you don't train at all and then you gotta come back and play the playoffs it's not exactly the best quality or the best system that they had in place. Well, we might get to talk to Jamie or Damien a little bit later in the show, but I do want to get to right now. Want to do the eye test, Jamie? Is that something Let's do we it. Do? Let's do the eye test. Hey, Greg, we need your help on this one. I'm sorry I haven't prefaced, uh, kind of prepped you on this one. You know how the eye test goes, right? You read a statement, uh, and then Jamie and I react to it. You want to be Jamie this time and read the eye test? Sure. I just have to find him first. Wow. Big, <laughs> big, big promotion for you. Get to be Jamie for a little bit, Greg. Exciting yes. times for you. 
Wow. You're now, like, can I, I could call you the Shohei Otani of this program. No, I'm not. Hey, 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 hey. Let's slow he's down not that there. versatile yet. He's not. <laughs> Let's slow down there. Greg, you good to go? Well, what am I reading out exactly here? I'm not. Uh, I'm not seeing Just read it. That, read that statement. That's okay. Exactly on. Read it as it's written. All right. Messi will be paid roughly forty-one million dollars U.S. annually by PSG. Okay. So I saw this, and Jamie, you and I have talked about this. Uh, throughout. like it's it's a pretty significant pay decrease for Lionel Messi yep. with what he's had over Barcelona. But I'm going to use the word incroyable. I'm going to go French. I'm <laughs> incroyable. <laughs> and I really hope it starts with an I, not an E. So incroyable is the one that I'm going to do. Um, it's not based on what Messi is getting paid yearly by PSG because it's, you know, yeah, it sounds like a lot, but it's peanuts uh, to him and to I guess to them because when you think of it this way, in the first 24 hours of his arrival on the team, first 24 hours the club has already sold or did sell 832,000 jerseys in a 24-hour period and you know what that brought in 105 approximately 105 million dollars in revenue so if the club keeps this up and keeps it around 10 percent say that's 10.5 million dollars in profit on the first day. So it's like when you think of the fact of what he's being paid, what you're able to bring in merchandise wise, not to mention, I don't know, if you can raise ticket sales just to see Messi play at PSG or, you know, the demand for ticket sales to go see him play. It's pretty incroyable the the boost that PSG gets just by having Lionel Messi on their team. Well, you don't often think about uh, you know a player making forty-one million dollars US to be a bargain, but yeah, that's exactly what it is here. I'll go with the, the for the I word. I'll go impressive-ish because you hear it and you're like forty-one million dollars a year. That's incredible. That's amazing. But as you said, I mean it's a pay cut for Leo Messi, right? And, and when you yeah. consider it, he had to be the most in-demand, high-leverage free agent in European soccer history, really, it's okay. You know, that's, that's a good number. It's a good number, but it's still a pay cut for him. And you look at, you know, I was comparing it to NBA salaries. I believe there's going to be six players in the NBA next year making more money than Leo Messi, right? And a lot of those guys are, you know, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, James Harden, right? Like big, big names, guys who've won MVPs and championships in a lot of cases. But, you know, there's also John Wall is going to be making $44 million, right? So, it's an impressive payday for Leo Messi, but it's it's an impressive-ish payday, right? Because <laughs> there's other guys making more. He could have made more. He's made more in the past. So good for him. I wouldn't turn my nose up at it, but it, it's not as impressive as it might have been. Okay, Greg, can you read the next one that's written on the rundown, please? Oh, I don't know. You got to pay me extra for two, Karen. I don't. I wasn't prepared for this one, but uh... I'll uh, I'll te- I'll text the boss and we'll get okay, right on that. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm already working on a raise with him from uh, my my time filling in on Bick and the Boss. So, uh, Kawhi Leonard has officially signed his new deal with the Clippers. So, I'm gonna use the <laughs> I'm gonna use impressive, but it only because I always get or it's. It may be incredible is the word I should use, but it's like these players 
opt out of their deals when they're injured. And we should preface this with Kawhi Leonard has an ACL injury. I don't know if he's going to play at all next year, Jamie, for the LA right. Clippers. And he opted out of the deal that he had the player option in the final year of his contract. And so he signs this new deal with the LA Lakers. He declined his $36 million player option. Now he signed a ridiculous, what is it, $176.3 million deal for four years. But one of those years is next year. And it's the same thing that Kevin Durant did with the Brooklyn Nets. Like, he blew out his Achilles tendon, and, oh, he's going to sign this massive deal with Brooklyn, and he still gets paid for even though you're not going to have him in your uh, in your lineup for a season. Like, it, to me, it's impressive that these players garner this much want from a year out from now that they can yep. still get paid these ridiculous amounts of money to not play for your team. Well, and the example of Kevin Durant is a good one, right? Because that worked out extremely, extremely well for Brooklyn. Like that, yeah, that was a bit of a bet. They're betting on his health. They're betting that he's going to be able to come back healthy and be the same player. And he was exactly that. He he looked phenomenal, right, right. in his first year in Brooklyn playing on the court. And uh, a lot of people have them pegged as, as uh, NBA Finals favorites, right, for next year because of, in large part, the level he was at uh, when he was healthy. And I guess I'll use just, you know, a boring vanilla I word. I'll go with interesting for this one. One, for the reason you're saying, right, that they're willing to pony up despite the injury history here or, or specifically this injury, but also just because, you know, when Kawhi Leonard went to the Clippers initially, he didn't lock in long term. He gave himself nope. an out that he that he exercised this year. But it's interesting to me, and Kevin Durant did much the same thing, that both of these guys were, were willing to say, you know what, nope, this is where I want to be long term. I'm going to sign the big extension. You can count on me for at least the next four years. Now it's the NBA, so you never know. Players can always opt <laughs> yeah. out. They can, or Players can always push for a trade, right? That, that can always happen. But I think for the Clippers, it's important and it's interesting that he's committing for the long term. It gives them a little bit more security, maybe a little bit more of an ability to plan for the long term as well there. And should be pointed out too, like Paul George has signed a maximum contract extension last December. So they both have both of them under contract for years to come, just not next season. We got one more. One more, Greg. All Extra right. overtime. Yes. Joe Thornton is headed to the Sunshine State. Jamie, you want to take this one first? That's right. Joe Thornton is going to the Florida Panthers. I'm trying to think of an I word that ties in with like the idea of retiring. <laughs> To Florida, right? Because Joe Thornton, not quite retired, but he's like maybe easing in to retirement uh, in, in in Florida. I'll, I'll just go with interesting again because, because uh, you know, I, I think there was an assumption from a lot of people that Joe Thornton was just going to stay in Toronto because he's from the area. And, you know, hey, they're a competitive team. I don't necessarily see them as cup contenders, but you can you can talk yourself into it. So I was pretty surprised, actually, to see him make the move all the way down south. Look, I like the Florida Panthers a lot, but I think a lot of people just assumed, oh, yeah, he went home to play for Toronto. That's where he's going to be until he retires. Not the case for Joe Thornton. Well, it's funny because Toronto really didn't want him back, right? They could have signed him, but they re-signed Jason Spezza. You've got Wayne Simmons. Like, it's like he of the quote-unquote – old guys they signed before last season the veteran players they chose with um two other ones and not him and greg sent me this before the show starts it was a text or a tweet that came in in response to joe thornton going down and playing in florida and it says the first time that joe thornton played against the panthers 
Florida had John Van Viesbroek and Dino Cicerelli on their team. Now, in context, right now, Joe Thornton's 42. He's entering his 24th season in the NHL. So with both of those players on the Florida Panthers, that was back in the 1997-98 NHL season. That's the last season that Van 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 Breesbrook played played for Florida. Uh, Just to put into context, like he's 57 right now and Dino Cicerelli is 61. So it's just when I say those ages to you and I talk about like the 1997-1998 season was the first year that Joe Thornton played the Florida Panthers. It just it shows you one the longevity of his career and maybe I'll say incredible because of the fact I don't think I thought he would play again after last season just based on you know foot speed and liability that he was on the Toronto uh, lineup at times or on the ice for Toronto at times but I guess I don't know intangibles maybe is this what Florida's saying for yeah, I, I don't know you know I actually pulled he, up he had, the roster. Sorry uh, to jump in, Jamie. Yeah, go ahead, but, go ahead. Uh, there's a few other names that are interesting on the list of players. Dave Lowry played in that game. Of course, his son oh, wow. Adam in the NHL right now. Ah. Uh, a couple other coaches. Kirk Muller played for Florida in that game. So there's some there's some wild names on the list of this roster. And even his own teammates. There was a couple. Like Ray Bork was still on his team <laughs> Very when good. he played in that game. So we're going way back. Yo, it's interesting though, Karen, because I mean, he had 20 points in 44 games and I know you're playing often with some, you know, pretty high talent forwards there in Toronto, but he can still play. You're right. Foot speed is an issue, but it does remind me a lot of Yager and the end of his career, right? Where, yeah, the speed's not there, but the size, the hands, the smarts, smarts, the smarts, you can still be really effective in certain situations. So I'm not surprised that Thornton's going to lace him back up for another year. He can still contribute, I think. And let's be clear, like, he signed for the one-year $775,000, like, league minimum contract. Like, he's not getting any more than that. He says, you know, obviously he's trying to chase a cup, and he likes what the Florida Panthers are doing, and they have a pretty exciting young team. They just signed Sam Reinhart. They avoided arbitration with him and signed him to a three-year deal, I think, earlier this week, Jamie. And then they've also got, you know, the Huberdals of the world and the Sasha Barkovs and that. And obviously Sam Bennett went down there this year. But... I, I don't know. I, I guess maybe it's a, it's a contending team, if you want to look at them that way, at least a playoff team, but also a team that's willing to take you on. Because if I'm Joe Thornton, I'm thinking, wow, why couldn't I have not got that Corey Perry contract and gone and played with the Tampa <laughs> Bay Lightning? But, you know, Tampa Bay is probably looking at Joe Thornton and saying, well, because Corey, Corey Perry is a little bit more effective on little the younger, ice than, little younger. than you are and younger. But it's, it's, it's also one of those things, though, where I do – I used to use talk about retirement. Like, I'm just wondering, it's like, ah, is it going to look bad? Because I don't think it is. I think he no? was. And, and here's the thing. Even if it does, I mean, Joe Thornton has earned the right to play for a long time. You know what I mean? And he was still fine. It's not, he wasn't a disaster for Toronto last year. I, I think he can still play. And we'll have to see how it goes. And like I said, it's the intangibles. He's good in the locker room. He's a leader. He can show this. He's made it to one Stanley Cup final. He can show this team how to be professional and get to the, not to the top of the mountain, but uh, to close to the top of the yep. mountain in the Stanley Cup. Okay, uh, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk to Julio Caravada on the other side, BC Lions color analyst. Not going to just talk about the BC Lions, though, Calgary. We're going to talk about the Calgary Stampeders. I want to know what Julio, former quarterback, sees from Bo Levi Mitchell. That is next on Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie, biggest question I'm ever going to ask you, Sammy Hagar or David Lee Roth? Oh, David Lee Roth, 100%. 100%. (laughs) Okay, so the listeners are going to probably 
like kill me for this. Obviously, it's Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd and Fiskart Rintoul jump by Van Halen. It's a request on this Friday from Minor Matt and Abbotsford. So there you go, Minor Matt, jump from Van Halen. I got my introduction to Van Halen with Sammy Hagar. So I'm a little bit of a Sammy Hagar person. That's fair. Hey, look, I won't judge you. I won't judge you for that. I, I will say my like far and away. I mean, they have other good songs, but far and away, my favorite Van Halen is their first album, right? Which is okay. just their self-titled album, which is with David Lee Roth, which I think is just like wall to wall. Fantastic songs. Awesome album. And so that it, it's always going to be David Lee Roth. I mean, he's a total weirdo, but he's a great good front man for the band. I think they both are a little odd. Oh, little yeah. On. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's funny because uh, mine would be probably standing on top of the world. Uh, and I can't tell. I think it's the Sammy Hagar version. So do you remember back in the day, uh, just to go off topic, if you had a Sports Illustrated subscription, did you used to have a Sports yes, Illustrated subscription? Yes, I did subscription? for a long time, yeah. So in December, you always got the VHS tape yeah. of the greatest sports moments of the year. And they did yep. a fantastic job with it. And I think it was the 1992, <laughs> dating myself, the 1992 uh, tape. I think that's that's the first year they had the Dream Team, right? Like, that's the Barcelona summer, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, correct. Right? Okay. Uh, and, of course, the Bulls won the uh, – did they win the title? That yep, Yeah, they, they won, won the title, that was, yep. that was their second one. Um, of the first three, and I can't remember. I guess the Blue Jays won the World Series, and Dallas Cowboys won the uh, the Super Bowl. So it kind of all of my sports love was into one because that's basically the year where I kind of became fans of all these teams because yep. of, because they were years. winning. And they were ten years old, right? So yeah, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if you don't have any loyalty from your parents passed along, or you know, have a team. You, you happen to live in that city. You know, I don't have any loyalty to that growing up in Winnipeg. So I jumped on all these bandwagons. And I remember hearing um, Van Halen on top of the world at the end of that tape. And I remember just being like, this is the most amazing thing ever. First of all, all these teams that I love were winning championships. And I get to hear this song. It was like, it just <laughs> it stuck with me. I think it probably led to my Van Halen love as well. That's too funny. <laughs> that's actually really funny. I like that. Wow. And this song, this is amazing. And I mean, that's fair. I mean, if you didn't own the tape or like, it's not like now you can just call up Spotify or YouTube or whatever right? and play a song anytime you want. Right. If you didn't own the tape, you, you weren't getting to hear it on a regular basis. So I like that. I do want to get this in. You know, we're talking about David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar. I called Dave, I, I voted for Roth, but I said he's a bit of a weirdo. And an unsigned texter gives us a, a David Lee Roth update. He says, actually, he's doing really well now and heads a bunch of charities. It's odd. <laughs> and I agree. That is odd. But I'm glad to hear that David Lee Roth is in a really good spot in his life. Like, what, what's the backstory again? Why they switched just with David Lee Roth's weird and interesting I could, stuff? That I couldn't tell probably? you. That's probably it. But I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I mean, there's so many egos you know, back in the day yeah. with these bands that uh, when you do look at like U2 and Bon Jovi and well, even Bon Jovi had a solo album as well. Like you, you look at these, the ones that have been able to stay together are just ever more impressive, especially when you've gone through the 70s and 80s. And I think you could probably yep. understand why <laughs> when I talk about the 70s and the 80s. Uh, just a quick note. Um, 
We were supposed to have Damian Warner on in the top of the hour segment. We're still hoping to get him. I've been in contact with some of his people, and we're hoping to get him on in about 10 minutes' time, about 11.45, Jamie. And we're going to push Julio Caravada. He has just gotten off the plane from Calgary, so we're going to push him to 12.05 for our listeners in Vancouver. Talk about the BC Lions and the Calgary Stampeders. Just to kind of recap what's happened a little bit today, Jamie, because... um, those that are just tuning in uh it's been actually pretty busy time in the sporting world no the olympics are over now we don't have those to talk about but when you talk about a thursday night in august you're probably thinking okay there's a jays game you could watch right or you know nfl football is on nfl football starts right now but you really yeah yeah i should i should qualify preseason because the nfl network had on washington and new england last night and i saw my twitter timeline you know, like the American followers um, on yep. my Twitter timeline, just going off tweeting about this preseason game. I'm just like, I could care less. Like, honestly, yeah, it would have been cool to say maybe Mac Jones throw a pass. And apparently he had a nice pass. Oh, you know, that's what Twitter well, Mac, told me. The, the reviews for Mac Jones were extremely positive, right? I have, I might have to eat my words that he's going to be sitting all season. He, he looks like he could find a way to get into the lineup. See, you know more than I do because I did not watch the game last <laughs> night and really just kind of just minimally followed on Twitter. But, I mean, the fact that we had a Field of Dreams game, we watched a game basically from a movie plot or a book uh, from, what, 30 years ago this movie came out. And then we had Bianca Andreescu on the court last night in the drama-filled match that that was. And then we had the Lions-Stamps game, Thursday Night Football on the CFL, Week 2, big game for both teams. And then we had the Jays and Angels. It was just one of those nights where it kind of like, yeah, I'm actually getting a workout with my remote control in August, which was really nice for us. And it's nice for us to talk on the show the next day that we actually have some topics. Yeah, it felt like a packed sporting night. It was awesome. It was refreshing. What was uh, what was the kind of number one thing for you that you were locked into? It would be Andrescu um, and her match against Anjabor. It's, you know me and I'm. I will tell you, like, my love for tennis is massive. And so when I can watch these Canadian athletes play, and I'm really interested in whenever she plays because I want to see if she can get back to the level of tennis that she played in 2019. And we saw her win Indian Wells early in the year. Then we saw her go far in Miami on the hard courts that season. Then we saw her win at the Rogers Cup. It was a walkover over Serena, but still, she did make it to the championship match and was a defending champion. And we saw her win the U.S. Open. Every time that I tune in to watch her play now, Jamie, I am just trying to see that if that entire package that we saw back then is still there. And I see it at times. There are glimpses of her fight. I don't think you could probably question, I don't even know if anybody on the tour has the internal drive or fight that (laughs) Bianca Andreescu does. Like, it's incredible the amount of effort she puts into points. It's incredible the drive that she has to, if she's down, not be ever out of a match. But I'm still trying to find that whole total package that she had in 2019, and you'll see it in glimpses, but... It's not there consistently. And I talked about this off the top of the show. I do have concerns about it. Oh, I think it's totally fair to have concerns. And there were moments in that match last night where she was doing exactly what you're describing, right? She's digging deep. She's finding the big shots in the big moments. I mean, particularly in the first set, right, where she was down a break late, desperately needed to get a break, then ended up in the tiebreaker, and and she had mm-hmm. to dig deep in a lot of those moments on a lot of those points. So she does still have that ability, but the question is, you know, you look at the opponent, 
you should be favored. You're heavily favored against that opponent, right? So that doesn't mean yep. it's going to be a walkover, but should you have to be digging down deep consistently against an opponent like that? And the other question obviously is how much of it is related to her game and how much of it is related to her health, right? And yeah. it's it's kind of impossible to separate the two, but is she struggling a little bit just because her game is off or is she struggling a little bit because she's rusty because she hasn't been able to stay healthy because she's dealing with something nagging right though that's the bigger question to me I still think given what we've seen from her and again as you say the drive and the the kind of gumption she has on the court if she can stay healthy for an extended period I have no doubt that she's going to start winning a lot of matches right and contending for tournaments it's just a question of can she actually stay on the court for an extended period of time and you make a good point because since that win at the U.S. Open in 2019, she did play in the Tour Championship at the end of the year. I believe it's held in China. Yep. And But she, I don't think she won a match there because, again, she was dealing with a nagging injury. And those injuries plagued her all through the COVID season last year. It's plagued her through this season. She doesn't have a lot of match um match play so far this year she there is understandably she could be rusty um and did you see when she went down she turned her ankle weird and at first we thought it was her ankle at least the announcers did as well and they showed her mom and dad who are sitting up in the stands and her mom's had her hands in her hands like oh my god not again yeah. because she was moving on the round on the court pretty well she did look like the bianca andrescu that we saw back in 2019 but then when she took her shoes off you could tell that she's got a toe issue and so how was that affecting her as this match went on how did the rain delay affect her and help maybe on Jabor I will say this about female uh, ladies tennis uh, <laughs> it's not something that I would probably bet on because of the fact the night in and night out it doesn't really matter where you're ranked in the world it's very there's no Serena Williams anymore there's no right. Venus Williams anymore there's no Steffi Groff anymore and so it is very any night any one of these ladies on the court could win a title. And it's good for, I guess, the athletes on the court. It's maybe not so good for the viewership and for, you know, Sportsnet, who is uh, hosting this tournament and showing this tournament on because you do want to have the best players in the world and the Canadians in the final. But it does lead to there are so many major winners and so many tournament winners over the past couple of seasons that it's really night in, night out. You could flip a coin and either of those two athletes has a very good chance of winning. Yeah, well, it's almost – in order to bet on it, you would have to be so kind of in the weeds and doing your research about matchups and who's in form and who's dealing with this injury issue and, okay, what's the surface? What, have, what has their record been recently? Like, to keep up with all the data, you're right, <laughs> because it's so hard to look yeah. at any any individual matchup and say, oh, yeah, I know who's going to win that, right? I mean, outside of the extreme mismatches, there's a ton of parity on that side of the tour. There absolutely is, and it's kind of counterintuitive to the other side of the tour where, and I say the other side, the men's side of the tour, where for so long it was if Novak Djokovic playing, he's going to bet on him, whether it's Rafael Nadal, you're going to bet on him, whether it's Roger Federer, you're going to bet on him. Now it's a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more parity in the game, but there's still that next generation. We talked about this, like the Tsitsipatses, the Medvedevs, um, the Berrettinis, like they're the level underneath the big three. And I guess the big one now, I guess you could probably call it because Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer really don't play a lot of tournaments anymore. But yeah. there's that 
next group and then there's the next group so and i when i say that second next group that's the felix oj aliasims and dennis shapovalos and that kind of next generation of young guys that are between the 10 to 20 range and you can point to a bunch of them if you go and look at the tour rankings but it's the men's game is a lot it was a lot easier to predict it's changing a little bit but still if like novak Djokovic's on the court He's winning the match. You're betting. You're going to go ahead and bet on him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it, that, like, obviously, it depends on the odds and all that. How safe do you feel? But, yeah, you, you feel pretty safe predicting a Novak Djokovic win at this point. I did want to run this by you because, um, you know, my love for Roger Federer. Fed yep. fan. Um, it's announced that he's not going to play at the U.S. Open, and he's hoping uh, where's that sat drop? He keep, we keep hoping uh, that he's going to play at the Aussie Open. He's made it to the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, lost to one of those next guys in Hugo Hurkans from Poland. But my question to you, Jamie, is Ra- have we seen the end of Roger Federer? Well, I don't know about seeing the end. I, I think he will come back and play in a tournament again, right? We, we have obviously seen the end of, you know, Roger Federer, dominant Roger Federer favorite at a tournament. I think we've seen the end of that, right? Just because of his age doesn't mean he won't win again. I I wouldn't count him out. He's an incredibly great athlete, but just we're obviously in the final stage of his career. So if I had to predict, yes, we will see him play in a major event at on the tour again, but we all also have to recognize like what we're watching, right? And it's, it's Mm -hmm. the final stages of his career at this point. He's 40. Now he just turned 40 this month. Um, I'm going to actually go the other side, and I'm going to take the L on this if I do see him again. And there was some mention in this conversation that he could play maybe some doubles action just to keep kind of a little in shape, but he's not up. He's not enough to go out there and play majors right. tournaments and play five set matches is basically what his, what his camp says. I don't know if we do see him again at a major, and maybe if it is, it'll have to be next year Wimbledon. I mean, the hope is he can play Australia. I just... And maybe it's me thinking that, Jamie, if I can't see Roger Federer play at his best, kind of just want him to walk away into the sunset. You well, know? that was going to be my, que- my question, right? As a, you know, a self-confessed massive Federer fan, what do you want, right? Do you want to see him back on the court again, or would you prefer if this is it for him? Well, and that leads to a bigger conversation with athletes. Like, did people like seeing Michael Jordan play in the end of his career for the Wizards? Like, I've literally don't have any memory of that because I've uh, scrubbed it from my memory. Like you see these athletes where they were such incredibly dominant athletes. Do you want to see them past their prime still trying to play? Even if they feel that they still have something to give, you could say Joe Thornton, but you, you see these athletes that they are rock stars during their heyday and they are the best you've ever seen. And then you see them towards the twilight of their career. And it's just like, they're trying to prolong it because they still have that competitive drive. But is it, is it fun for the viewer to watch it or do they, should they try and prolong their career and just be like, no, let's take a step back and say, I've accomplished everything that I can. It's time for me to walk away. See, I've, I've never had a problem with it. Right. My, my perspective is, you know, playing professional sports is, is such a privilege. It's so hard to do, right? Like think of all of the millions and millions of people who start out playing a sport and then even have aspirations to go on to greater things and who aren't able to never able to carve out a career at the professional level for themselves. It's so hard to do. I really don't have a problem with people trying to extend it as long as possible, right? Like if they still have the spark for it and they still are engaged and they love it, 
and it's making them happy, then why not? And and I think for a lot of people, you know, like I look at the Joe Thornton example. You know, Joe Thornton, he knows he's not the player he once was, but he can still contribute. He can still help a team. And he's figured out ways as he's got older to remain competitive, to remain productive on the ice. And I actually think that can be a really cool process to see, right? When a, when a, when an athlete's body does start to fail them a little bit, when they're not at their peak like they once were, how do they adjust? How do they find ways to compensate for that lack of athleticism? So I understand what you're saying, right? Is, you know, as a fan, you don't necessarily want to be left with kind of a tarnished image of an athlete. But to use the Michael Jordan example, okay, yeah, he came back and played for the Wizards and he wasn't himself, but that hasn't hurt his legacy everyone still thinks or most people still think he's you know the greatest basketball player of all time people still remember the good times with the bulls in the 90s and the championships so the fact that he came back you know in the long term i don't think it actually does hurt his legacy and i really don't have a problem with it i think great athletes like federer like jordan like you know you can throw thornton in there i know he hasn't won a a cup but just you look at his production over a long period of time I mean, they've earned the right to decide how they want to go out. And, and if guys make the other choice, right, which is to say, yeah, you know what? No, I, I'm done. I don't want to I don't want to play anymore. I respect that. But I have no problem with guys trying to milk as much of their as much out of their career as they can. Yeah, and for them, I do understand, too. Like, Joe Thornton is not about the money. Roger Federer, it's not about the money. It never was for Michael Jordan going to play for the Wizards. It was – It's there is a competitive drive that these athletes have that make them who they are and makes them the greatest to ever play the game. And not putting Thornton in that category, but, I mean, obviously he was a very incredible athlete. And um, it, it's just I, – I look and I see – It's I just don't want to have the memory of – that past their prime memory. And you're, you're right. You're totally right in your opinion. It's just for me personally, as a fan, it's like, Oh, seeing someone who was so great and then go out there and be in a shell of themselves. It's, uh, it's tough to watch, especially when you have fan- fandom involved. Uh, something though, that was not tough to watch. Jamie was Damian Warner competing at the Tokyo games. He won Olympic gold in the decathlon. Damien, good afternoon to you. How are you doing today? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing very good. Thanks. How you doing? I appreciate uh, we're doing pretty well. I appreciate it's probably been a pretty busy time for you since you won that gold medal and landed back on Canadian soil. Have you been able to reflect on winning the gold medal or has it just kind of been go, go, go? It's been a, a bit of a whirlwind since the competition ended. Uh, I finished uh, quite late um, on the 6th and then uh, the next morning we had to get up quite early for some media stuff and it feels like it's kind of just been a whirlwind tour ever since but uh it, it's really nice to be back home, be around the family, and uh, just have some people to celebrate with. Yeah, I was going to say, like, once you were able to step back on Canadian soil, because we did see you virtually get to celebrate with your wife and your family or your partner and your family and uh, your little baby. But when it, you finally got to get back home, what was that moment like? Uh, that was just really special because, like, as an athlete, I mean, when you see us compete at the games, it looks like we're competing in an individual sport. Uh, but in reality, it's very much a team effort, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of my a lot of people from my team weren't able to go over to Tokyo to watch. So it was really nice to come home and to share it with Jen and Theo, my coaches, my mom, my sister, our uncles, all those people that would have been over with me otherwise. But uh, yeah, just a really special moment. So, Damien, going through your your gold medal winning performance at the decathlon, obviously, it's it's such a unique event at the Olympics, right? Ten events over two days. Was there a moment, maybe you know, after a specific event or after day one? But there, was there one moment that you remember when you kind of took a breath and said, "Okay, you know what? I've got this. I can finish atop the podium." 
Yeah, it's one of those things where I had a great start on the first day, um, and people in the mix zone were asking me if uh, I thought that I was on pace for the gold medal. And I tried to tell everybody that you don't want to count your eggs before they hatch just because you're competing against some great guys and they have really strong second days. But I think it was after the pole vault. Um, we finished. I jumped a personal best. Uh, me and my coach were walking to the buses to catch it so we can go back to the village. Uh, and before we got on the bus, I turned to my coach, and I was just like, we're going to win a gold medal today. you know. And it was it was at that point with two events left where I kind of knew uh, just because the last two events are effort-based in a way, like javelin and the 1500. Uh, and I knew that at that point we're going to do whatever it took to, to finish on top of the podium. So what was that realization like, right, that moment where you kind of say to yourself, oh, my goodness, I'm going to win a gold medal? We, we just started laughing. It was, uh, <laughs> it was one of those things where, yeah, we were just laughing and he gave me a hug and it was just like kind of like a giddy moment just because this is what we dreamed about, you know, me and me and Gar, my coach that was with me in, in Tokyo. Th- these are moments that we've dreamed about since the very start, 10 years ago when we started t- training for the decathlon. And it was just kind of weird to, to, to put it out there, you know, and like say like we're going to win a gold medal today, you know, the, this is the dream that we've always dreamed about and it's going to happen in a couple of hours. And uh, it was just like a special moment. And of course you have to come back and you have to finish it off. And uh, luckily for us, we were able to do so. And it was really nice to walk up to him and give him the hug. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a really special experience, something I'll never forget. So you called the final event, the 1500 effort based. And I think that's really fitting because I know as a viewer watching it, seeing the effort you were able to exert <laughs> in the final stages of that race to, to gain so much ground and, and secure the time that you needed to go up over 9,000 points. Just take me through that, the final stages of that race. Like what's going through your mind? How does your body feeling? How are you able to draw so much effort at that stage of, of the decathlon event there? Well, it's weird. Usually going into the 1500, there's a, there's always going to be a time or something that you have to run. You know, the 1500 is always a trickle, a tricky event, like especially mentally. And, This was the first time going into the 1500 where I didn't really feel any nerves. Um, The time was 4.33.85 that I had to run faster. And in my mind, I was just like, oh, this will be easy. Uh, So we start the race. Me and my coach had a plan that through 1,200 meters of the 1500, I had to go through in 3.40 if I wanted to be on pace to to get the 9,000 points. Uh, So I was kind of just like trotting through, not really in any kind of rush. Uh, And then I got through 1,200 meters and I was six seconds behind the pace. Uh, and then there was just like a, a huge adrenaline rush and a little bit of panic. And I was just like, if I'm going to get this, I got to go now. So uh, I just ran and tried to catch as many athletes that were in front of me. And uh, luckily enough, I, I crossed the line with a couple seconds to spare and uh, scored 9,018 points. And uh, not only won the gold medal, but joined that elite group of guys uh, over 9,000. And it's like uh, two of my, my goals, my dreams uh, that I've had all along came together at the same time. And uh, it's just, uh, it's kind of surreal. It's it's funny you mentioned the fact that uh, you kind of started off with a bit of a jogging pace and had to kick it in, knowing what you needed to get. Because I was reading an interview with American decathlete Ashton Eaton, who you've trained with, obviously know very well, and won gold in Rio. And he said he was watching you run this event, and he was screaming at the television because he's like, "Damien, you're off pace. What are you doing? Get your butt in gear." Yeah, it's it's one of those things. My I, because the, there was no uh, there's not too many spectators in the stands. Uh, my coach was in the stands and I could hear him like yelling out, like, you got to pick it up. Like, and it was kind of like a very unique moment because normally at a games like that, you'd have 70,000 people and there's no possible way you could hear any individual voice in the stands. And this was a very unique experience in that way where I could hear people being like, Oh, you got to pick it up. You got to go faster. Um, and I seen that with the time and yeah, just kind of had to get my butt in gear and, and kick it up. And luckily enough, I was able to pass the time and 
uh, it was really cool because after the competition finished, I was able to talk to Ashton and um, yeah. just like, yeah, it was just a, a really special moment because uh, he's obviously somebody that I've looked up to for a really long time. And uh, yeah, it was just really cool to kind of uh, eclipse his world record. And um, he got two gold medals in the past two Olympics and I was able to get this one and maybe I could be the next guy to, to repeat. So is Paris 2024, that's in the plans? Uh, that's definitely in the plan. The sorry, that's definitely in the plans. Uh, I think that the cool thing for me as a decathlete is that the last two years have been the healthiest years that I've had, and I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, and I feel like I still have a lot more to learn in the sport. So as long as I'm able to stay healthy, I think I can compete at a, a high level for a really long time, and uh, definitely up to Paris 2024. So. Jamie and I were hosting a show when we were watching you um, run the decathlon. And after the di- the end of day one, the final event is the 400 meter, which is the longest sprint in the athletics. And then at the end of the set, day two, they leave you with the 1500 event. And we're thinking to ourselves, like, this is just brutal for athletes. You go through five events, you got to run a 400 meter sprint. And then at the end of 10 events, another five on day two, you have to run these 1500 meters. But does that lead to why it's so difficult and makes this event so difficult? to conquer uh yeah so there's there's that i mean at the end of the day like you have to run the 400 and 1500 like you're saying and it's just it's just so hard especially with the heat that we're having to deal with um but also like you have to be able to be in like really good shape you have to be fast you have to be powerful you have to be agile for the hurdles uh, you have to be strong and have good technique for all the other events so i think to me it's like a puzzle uh and that's why i like the decathlon so much is that you're trying to put this puzzle together but it's like it's almost like impossible. And I think like all the athletes are perfectionists in a way. So we're trying to get this perfect decathlon, but it doesn't exist, but doesn't stop us from chasing it, you know? Uh, and it's just like a really cool thing. And I think during, during decathlons, you always get to this point where you think like, why do I do this event? You know, it's just so hard. Uh, but for whatever reason you finish and you're just like, I can't wait to do the next one. You know, Damien, you mentioned all the different elements of athleticism that you have to excel in to compete and win at this event. What's training like for the decathlon? Because I imagine it's very complex trying to, you know, obviously maximize your strengths and what you're naturally good at. But as you say, you can't be, uh, you know, you can't just abandon some of the other events. How do you go about training for a decathlon? Yeah, it's extremely tricky. Uh, And it's like you were saying, you have to make sure that you maximize your strengths because, uh, the only reason why I became a decathlete in the first place is because of my strengths. Um, so it'd be, a, it'd be a shame or it'd be uh, disastrous to kind of avoid those. Uh, but at the same time, you have to take some time to improve your weaknesses. So uh, in some past competitions, I would get off to a really good start because my strengths are the, the speed and the power events. Uh, but then when it came time to get to pole vault and javelin, I would kind of trickle away and people would catch up. So, um, yeah, like from a training standpoint, we have to um, – try to hit all the events in a week. Uh, That's what we try to do. Um, So on some days you'll have like a sprint, a jump, and maybe a throw. Um, Yeah, so like we kind of divide it up like that. And um, sometimes you have to put some events on the back burner. So like hurdles is one of my strong events. So sometimes you might go like two or three weeks without hurdling just so you can focus more on pole vault. So it's a juggling act. Um, It's frustrating at times, but it's one of those things where it's – it's exciting because it leaves like there's always going to be room for improvement just because we can't spend too much time on any individual event. So from a technical standpoint, there's always going to be ways that we can get better. So, so unlike the rest of us, you know, we have leg day and arm day, you have, you know, javelin day and, and long jump day and shot put day, basically. Exactly. And, and it's one of those things where it, it's tough, but 
I, I think that the athletes enjoy it because it's not the same thing all the time. Um, and I think that from a, a, a mental standpoint, like if you're only a sprinter, for example, uh, if your sprints weren't going well or you're at like a point where you're plateauing, um, everything could be frustrating because nothing's getting better. Uh, but for us as decathletes, like it can be frustrating that like our pole vault's not improving or our javelin's not getting better. Um, but maybe our, our 1500 meter times are improving or our hundred meter times are improving. So there's always going to be some things that aren't going right, but then there's always going to be things that are going well. So, uh, it leaves us with like a really nice balance. It, Damien, just before we let you go, you know, you mentioned that your strengths are the, the speed and the power events. How exactly did you get into decathlon? Because I, I don't think it's necessarily a lot of sport that uh, people can, or a sport that a lot of people consider growing up. How did you find yourself uh, getting into it in the first place? Yeah, in Canada, we don't have a decathlon in our high school systems. Uh, and even we don't have an outdoor season in Canada as well. So the decathlon wasn't a real, like a thing that I was familiar with. Uh, so throughout high school, I was a long jump, triple jump and high jumper. Uh, then I moved on to do some sprints. I uh, had a couple rough years where I wasn't really enjoying the sport anymore, and I didn't really know what the next step would be or how I'd get to that next step. Uh, so I like contemplated quitting, maybe going to try to play uh, football or something else like that. Uh, and then some of my coaches suggested the decathlon, uh, and I was like, sure, like what's the decathlon? And uh, almost quit when I heard about the 400 and the 1500 meters, but uh, luckily I stuck with it and uh, I've been able to travel the world and do some uh, great things and meet some great people, and it's uh, just been uh, the joy of my life. Hey, Damien, I know you are incredibly busy, so I want to thank you so much for joining us for a few minutes here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Um, congratulations on the gold medal. Congratulations on the success moving forward, and hopefully you get to take a little bit of a break here moving forward and enjoy some time with the family. I hope so, but thanks for having me on. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Damien. That was Damien Warner world's greatest athlete he is canadian olympic gold medals in the decathlon uh we're gonna take a quick break calgary sorry about this we went a little long uh we will talk to you on monday morning at least uh scott rentoul and jamie dodwell i will be on vacation we're gonna turn things over to the big show when you come back in vancouver we're gonna talk to julio caravetta that's next on the sportsnet radio network you're listening to rentoul and sermon one final hour to go ahead of the weekend at least for us, anyways, Jamie, Scott uh, Rintoul and Sermon, uh, Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. I am Karen Sermon. Yes, one final hour to go in the books. I'm very happy we got Damian Warner on. Yes. I know it was a little juggling around with his schedule. Uh, so we thank him for joining us because I love the fact that he knew he was going to win the gold medal so prior great. to the final event. That's incredible. So great. He's like, yeah, I've got this. And I love that his first reaction was kind of laughter, right? Like almost disbelief. Like, wait, I'm really going to do this. I'm going to win the gold medal in the decathlon at the Olympics. That was awesome. And I don't know if he said on any other interview he's done, but you heard it here. Like 2024, 2024. Let's go three years from now. He'll be 34 years old. Let's do that. That's uh, let's equal. Ashton Eaton, uh, who got double gold in the Olympics. So we congratulate him and thank him again for joining us. We're going to be joined momentarily by Julio Caravana, BC Lions color analyst on the radio broadcast. Um, not an oil painting last night, Jamie. Not really. Not a barn burner no, either. Not, not the prettiest uh, football game I've ever seen, that's for sure. Well, and I think that's one of the things that we're seeing uh, early in this season. Yes, there's football in the field. Yes, the quality of football you might be surprised with is better at times. But in the end, not a lot of points being put up by offenses. There is a lot of 
some teams, and you can point back to the Elks game last week against the Red Blacks, like a lot of offense put up in terms of yardage, but not a lot of points on the scoreboard. So uh, we'll break this all down with Julio Caravetta, 15-9 final for the Lions. They get their first win of the season in Calgary. Julio, how are you? Welcome back to the Lower Mainland. <laughs> thanks, Karen. How are you? <laughs> Doing good, thanks. Uh, first good. off, I've got to ask you, how was the uh, chicken parm and the meatball sub <laughs> at Spalumbo's? <laughs> Well, listen, um, Moj is making me more uh, uh, social media savvy. So I have to post all this stuff now. But, um, yeah, no, it was, uh, it, was, it was better than what it looked like. It was just amazing. <laughs> Love going to that place. Jamie, I don't know if you've been to Spalumbo's in Calgary. Uh, I have not had the pleasure, no. Well, if you do go to Calgary, go to it. Uh, our Calgary listeners would have known. Oh, it's so good. I've had their yeah. sandwiches before there. It's, it is prime. It's one of the main stops. Or the only Every time that we went to Lions on the road with Julio and Moj over the last couple of years when I was traveling with them, that was basically our first stop after we dropped our bags <laughs> off. It was, let's go to Spalumbo's. Yes. Uh, let's start with the beginning of this game, Julio. How surprised were you that Mike Riley started? Not. I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, I, I know that it's been, there's a lot of people talking about it on, like, you know, making comments on on Twitter and social media and stuff. But if, if anybody who went to the practices heard Rick Campbell talk, um, you know, I mean, he made it very, very clear to everybody that they were going to prepare as if Nathan Rourke was going to be the starter. But if Mike Riley was going to be healthy at the beginning of the game, and he came to him and says, I'm ready to go, Mike was going to play. That's that was made very clear to everybody that, that I was talking to, and um, it was never, ever something that was, you know, sprung on me on the uh, day before the game. I, I knew, and I thought, you know, I said it's kind of ironic because in week one everyone talked about Mike Riley and nothing about Nathan Rourke, and then Nathan Rourke started, and then week two everyone talked about Nathan Rourke making his start, <laughs> second start, and it was Mike Riley that played. But, you know, I, I wasn't surprised at all, um, especially watching the warm-up. I knew that he was way better in way better condition than he was a week one. Yeah, so like when I was when I saw him come into the game second half of week one, mechanically it looked really uncomfortable for him to throw the ball, uh, trying to even extend his arm. What did you see from him? At least you think positive going forward that he's at least can manage this or well, is on the mend. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you, you're right when you say you know he's learn, learning to manage it. But I won't lie, Karen. Like what what he what he did yesterday was basically go out and complete 80% of his passes for almost 364 yards. And, I mean, he hasn't practiced. <laughs> That's the crazy <laughs> part about this whole thing. He has not. He's, he's taken very limited reps, if any reps at all, uh, during the week of practice. And I know it's Mike Riley. I know he's a veteran quarterback. But still, there's a certain amount of timing that's required, game speed, all those kinds of things. And I know he's played in how many games and I know he's used to all that stuff but when you haven't done it for a long time it's difficult so he made it look very easy that throw to Burnham going across the field told me everything I need to know that he's fine well and Julia you said it you know I, I was watching and thinking if this is a guy who's still sort of hurt and hasn't been able to practice all week and he's able to play like this that's pretty good I think you can feel pretty good yeah. about your quarterback situation then and you know I'm glad you mentioned the throw to Burnham because I thought in particular in the first half Riley and Burnham showed off a lot of chemistry together how important is that going to be for the Lions offense for the rest of the season well you know Brian's a big part of the game right he's a big part of the game plan so He's, uh, he's a guy that um, you know that Mike 
and him are going to uh, are just going to have that chemistry, right? That's something that goes back to a couple of years ago. They 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 have a real understanding of what they're trying to do offensively, and they're really trying to you know build on that. I, I will say that Mike was a little upset with himself afterwards with that throw that he, or with the overthrow to burn him in the end zone. You know, I, I said to him like, if you would have been able to practice maybe the last month, your timing might have been a bit better, but. I think one of the things that really jumps out at me, guys, is the offense is very, very well um, spread out. Like, it used to be all Brian, Brian, Brian. You throw in a little bit of Lamar Durant. But now with Dominic Rimes, and you look at what Lucky Whitehead's brought to this football team, my goodness, he is uh, he's a very dynamic player who brings them a lot of versatility in, uh, in, in the offense with those jet sweeps and screens. And he's a very, very good route runner. And when you have a guy like that, he causes a lot of problems for you uh, on defense. And you throw in now Chris Rainey, um, you know, Shaq Johnson, Dominic Grimes, all those guys with Burnham. I mean, they're going to be very, very, if they can stay healthy, they're going to be very, very good on offense. That's two games in a row over 400 yards of offense. So looking forward to when these guys can really start getting their timing down together and, and, you know, get a few games under their belt. And I wanted to ask you about Lucky Whitehead as well, because for me, he was the most exciting player on the field last night. You know, you mentioned they're using him out of the backfield in those jet sweeps, and he, he has that electric speed and that ability in open space. But as you say, the really impressive thing is he he's not just, a, you know, a gadget play guy, right? He can line up yeah. and run routes down the field. And just that extra element of the offense, how important is that for Michael Riley and the rest of the Lions for, for this yeah. season? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, and one of the things, you know, that, 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 that as I said uh, about Lucky, that everybody talked about when, when I got to training camp was that, that he was exactly that more than just a gadget guy. They were very, very impressed with his ability to run routes. Like they said, this guy is a very precise route runner and, you know, he can beat you a lot of different ways. And, you know, that's, you know when you have guys like that are that versatile, that, this just makes your offense that much more, uh, unpredictable, right? It, it, I think in years past, it, it, it just has been predictable. This, with when you have that kind of personnel and you're able to spread the ball out, and and especially too when you have a quarterback like Mike that is a veteran guy who sees the field, who understands defense. He's seen pretty much everything that you're going to throw at him. When you have when you have a guy who truly is reading the defense and taking what the defense is going to give you, you know you're you're you have you know. The, there's not very many things the defense can do. You know, the, they're hoping basically they can beat you up front and, and force you into throwing the ball quickly. But it, the way the Lions have played up front as well uh, on offense, uh, it, it continues to uh, impress me, and it tells me that uh, that group is is got something to prove after their 2019 campaign. In conversation with Julia Caravana, BC Color uh, Lions Color Analyst on the radio broadcast with Moj Bob Marjanovic, uh, Julio, the what? I guess if you're to look at this game and you're on the offensive side of the ball and something that they want to improve on going forward would be conversion in the red zone, and whether that's with making field goals or finding uh, finding a major, does that come down to lack of practice and lack yeah. of chemistry? No, I, I think it's lack of practice. I, I really do. You know, you know, the red zone is one of those things, Karen, that when you, you, you can practice it all you want, um, but there's nothing like that, that in-game pressure of getting down there and having to execute. And I just think that the Lions, when they are able to 
you know, when Mike's able to practice and they're able to kind of go over a lot of this stuff in, in practice, um, they're just going to be that much better, right? The, this is a, a team that, uh, as I said, has not had much work with its first-team quarterback. And although he is a veteran and he knows the game, there is, you know, I mean, you still have to have a certain level of timing and practice with certain guys. And I, like I said, I, I think they're only going to get better. We haven't even talked about that defense. I mean, my I goodness, know, I... that defense was something else. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you about next because there were questions going into this season, especially with the front four, front sevens, maybe not the defensive backs, but the Lions now haven't allowed a touchdown in their last six quarters. Ten points, one point in that second half uh, to Saskatchewan and the nine points last night to Bo Levi Mitchell. I mean, how impressed are you with what you're seeing on the defensive side of the ball? Oh, just it, it, totally impressed. Like, it, I mean, that's that's a pretty special I, – I, I, I was I – was, um, just saying, um, as I walk the paths at UBC, my daughter's in a soccer camp. My good friend Carlos Ferreira is with me. And I was just saying to him that I don't know if I've ever been to Calgary and they haven't given up a touchdown. You know, that's, that's something when you are able to hold that, deep, uh, that offense to, you know, what, you know, what was it, nine points? That's mm-hmm. yep. unbelievable. That's unbelievable. And so... When you talk about that front seven, which was completely remade, um, J.R. Tavai is the only guy who's got any experience in the CFL up front. And so, you know, it's just one of those things, Karen, that they really took a chance by going through or going with a lot of young guys. And those guys now are paying off because they're getting more and more used to the game. They're getting more and more used to, you know, the pace of the game and how to handle different situations. They're only going to get better and better. The front seven was really impressive, and then I was also blown away by the secondary and some of the plays they made. I mean, obviously yeah. picking off Bo Levi Mitchell four times, but, you know, you just look at some of the talent they have back there, and, you know, you had a guy like Keontae Harden, and the, you look at the play that he made in the end zone. That seems like it could be a real strength of the unit. <laughs> How about Cooper? Yeah, that well, was a good one, too. Cooper's interception was unbelievable as well. Like that, They've got two rookies to the wide side of the field. And so I knew Dave was going to try to attack those two guys and see what ends up happening too, is that when you're, you know, because everybody's watching, right? The coaches are always watching personnel. And so for the lions, you know, when you run, when you run out there with, you know, five rookie defensive linemen, basically, and you have a middle linebacker, that's a rookie and you have your wide side half and wide side corner that are rookies, they're going to go after you. So what do you think Edmonton's doing right now as they watch the film and they see those two guys making plays out there? Do you think they're going to take shots at them? Probably they will, maybe. But when you're making plays like that and it's on film and people are watching, they're saying, hey, these guys are pretty good. So it's not the case of maybe every time you're going on play, they're going to try to test you every time because you know they're going to take shots against. And that's the second game in a row they've gone after Harden. And he's responded very, very well. So... He's now getting him, giving himself a bit of a reputation that, hey, this rookie, he can play. And the same for those other guys, right? They're sending a message to the league that, uh, you know, we may have a lot of young guys and you may want to attack us, but we're, we're, we're handling ourselves pretty good here. And, and if you want to take your shots, go ahead, but we could make you pay the price. 
What did you make of Bo Levi Mitchell's performance last night, Julio? Because, you know, we had earlier earlier on in the show, we're on in Calgary as well, and we had Calgary listeners texting in, like, this guy's done. What is he doing out there? I mean, you have to give the BC Lions defense a lot of credit, but just as a quarterback, what did you see from, from Mitchell last night? Well, you know, Bo's still a very good quarterback. There's no question. I, I, I think that, that the injury to his shoulder, I think, is, is catching up to him a little bit. I just find that he can, he can still throw the ball, but he just doesn't – I don't know whether or not it's that whole vertical presence that he just doesn't – can't veer back and really kind of let it go like he once could. And that's, you know, that's a part of getting older as well. But, you know, let's be honest. Uh, you know, Bo didn't get much help up front. You know, they're, they're a different team up front. They're not as, they're not as uh, dominant as they were uh, a few years ago with some of the experienced guys that they have there. And that's – there's a lot – that's a young team, right? That, that they're, they're a team that's also going through a lot of change, and there's going to be some growing pains. But as I said after the game, you know, I've got a ton of respect for Dave Dickinson and John Huffnagel. I know how good of coaches those guys are and how, how, how they put teams together. Um, they're going to bounce back, but, it, you know, I mean, they don't, there's not that aura around them that they once had. Uh, when you, and I said this after the game, was that you used to walk into that stadium as a visiting team and, and you, were, you, know, you were beat before you even stepped on the field. And I just don't think there, there's that sense of you know, that, that they're, they're, they're that good, you know, they're, they're going to have some growing pains and that's not saying that they're not going to be good down the road, but um, they're definitely going to have to start working things, some things out. Julio, do you think uh, the Lions are going to have to bring in another kicker to the team? <laughs> I'm going to find out pretty quick. I think tomorrow, um, okay. you know, it, it, it all depends, Karen. Like, you know, I, I said this as well. He, he's a young guy who's going to have his ups and downs. But at the same time, he's a guy that uh, um, has shown that he's got a really strong leg. But having a strong leg and, and being able to transfer that into a game are two different things, right? So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it all depends on how they feel about him. If they feel that, hey, this, this is the guy we want, this is the guy we're going to work with, and we're going to go through some growing pains, then they're going to keep going with him. But if they're, if they're not happy, then they're going to try to find somebody to come in and, and, and you know, fill that hole or, or give them a little bit of competition. Because it's one thing, I don't think they, there wasn't another kicker in training camp. There was three of them. I think the, the one kid was, uh, I think he did some punting and field goal kicking, but um, Jake Ford only punts. And so who knows uh, what, what, their, what their plans are. And as I said, I'll find out tomorrow. But, uh, you know, it is definitely a, a point of concern, right? You I mean, he's missed four yeah. field goals in two games and, you know what it's like, Karen, right? You get into this is the easy part of the season, right? The weather's not a problem. Could you imagine what it's going to be like in a couple of months when you start heading out into the prairies and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're heading back east when the weather really starts to get uh, unpredictable? It's, you know, you got to have that, uh, that confidence that you need with your kicker. And, you know, right now he's a young kid who's trying to find his way, and, and uh, we'll see whether or not they're going to allow him to continue to grow and develop or they're going to say, hey, we, we, can't, we can't afford to. Uh, sit back and 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 watch this the mistakes happen. We need to get somebody in here that we can, uh, you know, we can count on. Hey, Julio, just before we let you go, you're going to be back in BC Place in the booth for the first time since what is it? I think October yeah, of 2019. It was a very long time ago, lifetime ago. It feels like. Yeah. Uh, just how excited are you to see fans in the yeah. stands and get back at BC Place? Well, I won't lie to you, Karen. Uh, it, it, you know, I know how hard it's been hard on everybody everybody um so to be back at it and to be able to um get back to the stadium and watch a football game in in bc place is going to be 
you know, it's going to be very exciting. And, and um, you know, going into this season and knowing how it was all kind of going to go down, two games on the road, and how it, how important it was for the team to go out in its first two games and, you know, be exciting and entertaining and hoping that the fans were going to latch on to that and be able to, you know, be able to have some excitement around the team and, and that they've done that. I mean, this is a good young team. They needed to get younger. They did that. They're exciting offensively. They can they can put up some, as I said, you put up some yards. Now they got to finish it and put up some points. But defensively and offensively, this is a very well-rounded team. There's a couple of, still a couple of holes and some tweaking that needs to be done. But um, I think the fans here should be very, very excited about the product that uh, is going to be on the field. Hey, Julio, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. As hey. always, uh, we'll talk to you down the road. A- anytime, Karen. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thanks, Julio. That's Julio Caravetta. Color analyst on the radio broadcast with Moj Bob Marjanovic. Uh, you know what? He's right when he says they had to get younger. And you address that um, the front seven and the front four, Jamie. Like if you go yep. back to 2019, like you think of names like Sean Lemon, and I know he was playing for Calgary last night and was still can show spurts. But then you throw Odell Willis in there, like. This defensive line could not get to the quarterback in 2019. They were just a step slow. They were guys that had been all-stars in the league, but at some point you have to get younger, and the Lions have taken a chance with that. Yeah, and that's the thing about going young, right, is there's risk, but there's also a lot of upside. And I think you're seeing that in the front seven, and you're also, as as uh, Julio said, right, you're seeing that in the secondary a little yeah. bit too, right, with two rookies playing on the outside uh, at cornerback, but they're making big plays. They're showing off their athleticism. They're showing off their game-breaking ability, right? So far, at least those bets are paying off. And one thing should be noted, Yamasaki, the kicker, uh, the one difficult thing about replacing him is the fact that he's a global player and you have to have two global players right. on your roster. So for if something was to change, they'd have to have another global player take his place. So that's obviously something that would uh, they'd have to consider going down the road. One final segment to come on this week's show. Around the corner, we're going to get to some notes and quotes and talk about some Canucks news as well. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Oh, Jamie, we're working for the weekend. 20 more you're, minutes. You're working for even more than the weekend. You're working I'm for working vacation. For the, I am so excited. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm excited for you. Thank you. You know, it's it's not just so much vacation. And, of course, you're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Everybody has dealt with difficulties during COVID different yes. situations, you know, whether it be health, whether it be mental struggle, mental health struggles, whether it be, um, you know, not seeing friends and family, just being confined to your home. I haven't seen my family in 20 months now. I haven't been home to see my friends in Winnipeg in 24 months. Now it literally was August 10th was when I was in or when I was in Winnipeg. 2019 like this has been two years and I wasn't willing to get on an airplane until I was fully vaccinated until vaccination levels were higher and they've gotten to a point where we're like okay let's go home for the summer right because right. you know you, you could do a road trip to Winnipeg but it's, it's basically 24 hour drive it's a long time yeah it, it, you know, people think like okay it's a two and a half hour flight but I got to go over a couple mountain ranges to get to Winnipeg and once you hit the, once you hit Calgary it's basically point to your car east and you don't move. Like, it is yep. just a direct shot to Winnipeg, but it's a little bit more complicated than just that. So I'm pretty excited to go home and just see my family. And it, uh, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, no kidding. That's awesome. That's going to be that's gonna feel amazing, I bet. And, you know, 
I think we're all kind of looking forward to these experiences, right? That are coming up. Yes. That, oh man, the first time I get to do X in almost two years, right? The first time I get to do this in, in 18 months, right? So yeah, I'm really excited for you. Oh, thank you. And I'll let you know what it's like going to an airport and getting an yes, airplane. Yes, please I, do. <laughs> I can only imagine what that is like. I do know, like we're flying WestJet and they've already told us you're going to get a temperature check when you get there. There's extra screening that you have to go through. So we'll be there two hours in advance to get on an airplane. Um... Yesterday, Larry Brooks, did he cause a stir? Did he put out anything new? I don't know. Basically, he just gave an update on NHL participation in the Olympics. And for those yep. that didn't see, I'll read the tweets that he put out. And Larry Brooks with the New York Post, he's very tuned in, right? He's a very, uh, he's in the know, shall we say, yeah. with the NHL. So basically said the PA has alerted players that NHL will not pay for COVID insurance at the Olympics or Olympic qualifiers. League position is that the players will not be paid for the games they miss because of COVID if contracted at the Olympic events. Now, the PA did the double IHF with cost of the insurance, but has been told international federations will not pay. So at this point, the PA, quote, strongly advises players not to participate in Olympic qualifying events. Talks are ongoing. Now, the key thing there is right now, apparently, according to Larry Brooks, it's not participating in the qualifying events, not the right. actual Olympics themselves. So there's that. From this. Yeah, so when they when you hear, you know, the NHLPA advises players not to do this, they're talking about, like, the smaller countries that need to qualify yes. for the event first, right? So that that's a very important distinction to be made. Look, I understand the NHL's position on this, and it always has been. It's, a lot of it's always been around insurance and who's going to pay for the NHL players to go. The Obviously, the NHL doesn't want to pay for it, and the owners don't want to pay for it, the extra cost, because they don't want them to go. Like, the NHL owners do right. not want these players to go. Like, let's make that put out there. It sucks. It stops their season. There's the potential of injury uh, that could derail their NHL season and push for the Stanley Cup. And that's what all what the owners want. Obviously, there's, you know, in the last collective bargaining agreement, Jamie, they said, like, look, we're going to do you a solid and we're going to try and go to the games. COVID insurance, I'm guessing, insurance, I'm guessing is not cheap. And I understand what there is. This is an added cost on top of just insurance in general. But I do also think this might be some posturing. I don't even know what it is. Like, I don't know what to read into it, actually. Yeah, it's, it's all posturing and negotiation, right? Like, that's, that's kind of how it goes until a deal is made. And I don't want to say it's a slam dunk that a deal will get made. But the players, we've heard this. We've talked to people, you know, Pete DeBoer was on the show yesterday, right? Saying, look, the players have been very adamant about this. They know how much it means. I still very much believe that the players are going to find a way to make this happen, right? Mm -hmm. If they have to bend a little bit on insurance costs, then they're going to do that. But it is tricky because it puts them in a tough position negotiating with the IOC, with the IIHF, right? Because, you know, those organizations know how much it means to the players as well, right? So right. it's tough for the players to get a lot of leverage in this sense. But I think this is a surmountable obstacle. I do like the fact that this is actually uh, the NHL had to make a statement in response to these tweets, basically, basically they said, as a reminder, no final agreement or decision has been made to this point regarding the possible participation of NHL players in the Winter Olympics. Talks remain ongoing, blah, 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 blah. Like, it's, it's, it's still, I expect to have some sort of, um, I believe Bill Daly, when he told Greg Wyshynski that they want to have it by the end of August, because there's a lot of logistics that oh, have to happen. Oh, there's a ton happen. of logistical things, yeah. To, to this, just completely reorganize the schedule like that on yeah. the eve of training camp, that's a big deal. Exactly. So I, I, with the fact that the NHL did put out the schedule with the Olympic break in there, it leads me to believe that 
they are gonna go, they're gonna find a way to make make it happen, maybe I'm just holding out hope, I don't know, but still, let's, we'll hopefully find out within the next week or two. You mentioned the schedule, Jamie, are you excited? Start times are out for the schedule. Start times, yeah! Woo-hoo! I don't know, I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess it's good to know. It's not as exciting as when the schedule is released, right, and you see who they're playing yes. when, but it's good to know start times, for sure. Key, key dates to put out there, and you can go to the Canucks website if you want to see all the start times, if you're that curious. Uh, this one had me a little confused because it's the season opener is in Edmonton. The Canucks open their season uh, at Edmonton. It's a Wednesday night game. Two months actually from today, October 13th. It's an 8 p.m. Pacific start. That's a 9 o'clock start local time. Yeah. That that's uh, we've seen that that happen a, a few times to the Prairies and and I think even to Winnipeg it's been but late. As no well. fans in the stands, Jamie. Right, but <laughs> it's I guess it's just strictly for TV. It is a drag. I mean, and it's tough. It, it's weird. You'd think normally going over a province that way, you'd have an earlier start time for Vancouver, right? Not a later yes. start time. So it is a little odd. The really weird that's on a Wednesday, right? So I understand, yes. you know. At Sportsnet, we do Wednesday night hockey, right? And so we'll do. There'll probably be a, there'll be an Eastern Canadian team playing at five thirty or something, and then yeah. they'll get this one on at eight. But the really weird one to me is later in the season. Actually, the last couple of weekends of the season in April, they play Saturday, April sixteenth at Edmonton at eight o'clock, and then the next week, at, uh, the twenty third at Calgary at eight o'clock, and. That's weird to do on a Saturday because the second half of Hockey Night in Canada, that game starts at seven, right? Like that's how it's always so been. Eight I don't really understand time? that one. Like eight o'clock for us? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah, that's yeah. so weird. Because Albertans are used to that. Uh, I used to have season tickets for the Oilers when I lived there, and we were Saturday night games were eight o'clock starts for us because of where it landed on you know, when I lived there because of where it landed on the calendar, but it's always been seven o'clock starts. Although actually we could be both completely, completely wrong. If these are listed in the local time zone of where the game is being played, oh, we yeah, might be yeah. just completely getting this wrong. And if, if, yeah, if that's the case, I well, apologize. And I, I think we I'm, are actually, I know I'm not getting the season opener one. Cause I'm actually on the Canucks Twitter page right now. And they have said key matchups for the 2021, 2022 season season opener at Edmonton at Edmonton. It says eight o'clock Pacific time. So unless the Canucks, Twitter account is incorrect. That would be a nine o'clock local. Well, but here's here's how I know though. Here's how I know. Okay, that is weird. That is weird. So I don't know what's going on here. But the Saturday Saturday in March Saturday March fifth they play at Toronto, and that game is listed at seven. Uh, now we know that game is at four o'clock Pacific time, right? Okay, they so are going to Toronto time. and they're playing the Leafs at four Pacific time. On the schedule, it's listed at seven. So. It's possible that we've got a situation where some of the times are listed in Pacific <laughs> and some of the times are listed in local wherever they're playing. And so it's funny because, hey, now we know what time it is. It's like, well, do we actually? Do we? Or is oh there some, are there some in- inconsistencies here? Someone's going to get their hand slapped for getting this wrong. Oh, yeah. my goodness. That's hilarious. I will say this, um, and I think this is correct <laughs> because it makes sense. December 18th, the Toronto Maple Leafs are in town. It's a four four o'clock puck drop, and we always see that yeah. when the Toronto Maple Leafs are in town, they like to put it in prime time for them in the Eastern Time Zone. Toronto is always king. I'm not opposed to this, honestly. I don't know why everyone's like, "Oh, they yeah. put it at four o'clock because you know they're appeasing people out east." Yeah, you have a game at four o'clock. It's one of my favorite things to go to Whitecaps games. Is there four o'clock in the afternoon? Most of them on a Saturday, and then you can go out and enjoy the rest of your evening downtown. Yeah, I don't get bent out of shape about it. You know, I know it has happened where it's been on like a Wednesday 
or a Tuesday or something. And I get that's a drag because it's a weeknight. So you can't, you're not really going out after it. And, it, and it, you know, maybe you're not getting home from work in time to see it. I, I understand that. But on a Saturday? Yeah, why not? Four o'clock. That's a perfect right? time. Perfect time for, to yeah. watch some hockey on a Saturday. I don't have any issue with it. So I don't have the inbox open right now, but if people are texting and don't text in, it's stupid. It's frivolous. Don't do it. It's not, it's, there's no point to it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the early watch. Then you can enjoy the rest of your evening. Jamie, let's get quickly to notes and quotes. Who's in the top six? Getting pucks out, getting pucks deep. Who's in the crease? Really none of your business. And who's in the press box? It's time for notes and quotes. Time for notes and quotes. Uh, there is one note coming out of Canucks, specifically the Abbotsford Canucks. Jamie, they did sign defenseman Ashton Sontner to a one-year AHL contract. He spent most of last season on the taxi squad for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, he's uh, locked up. And then the other notable signing for Abbotsford is uh, former Vancouver Giants forward who played for them for a long time, was a leading scorer for the last couple of years. Tristan Nielsen has signed with Abbotsford, and he is from, I, th- I believe, Fort St. John in northern BC. So right. another BC guy, obviously with ties to the lower mainland through playing for the Giants, coming home to Abbotsford. That's really exciting. I know a lot of people are fired up that Tristan Nielsen is going to start his pro career there. I think, honestly, I think not to get too off track here like you got Nick Patan coming back he is a local kid we talked about the the kid's name who I butchered yesterday and I apologized for it uh who they signed yesterday from Squamish like I, I like the idea. I like them being in Abbotsford. I just think it's cool to be able to see BC kids that play either for the North Shore Winter Club or the BCHL, and now they're at the WHL, like Tristan Nielsen did, and now they're able to play in Abbotsford and continue their pro career with probably the team that they grew up cheering for, right? Like, if you yep. want to talk about it in that term. So it's good for, I think, the Canucks having them so close, but it's also good for just having excitement in Abbotsford and having the farm team closer to home and being in BC. And that team, that Abbotsford team, is shaping up to be a lot of fun, right? And to be very competitive at the AHL level. And, you know, I know we were talking about the Canucks game times here just a few minutes ago. When Abbotsford released its schedule with its game times, I was definitely out there checking out, hey, like, is, are there going to be some early afternoon games that I can potentially take my family to? Because, you know, mm-hmm. a little more affordable, a little more easier. You, you don't feel like there's so much pressure that, you know, you have to stay for the whole time or whatever if, if some people are, are having difficulties or whatever the case may be with young kids. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to going to check out Abbotsford because it's it's another option to get to get out and go see some pro hockey. And that team looks like it's stacking up really well for the AHL. And I think that's what they're hoping, right? Exactly what you said, Jamie. It's a little yep. bit more affordable. You can go with your family, especially. I mean, they might not be targeting families that live specifically in, um, you know, like the Vancouver proper area. But right. there's so many families in Langley. There's so many families in Abbotsford and Chilliwack that it's just an easy hop, skip, and a jump for them to go watch this team play. Uh, Joe Thornton, we mentioned it already. He signed that one-year $775,000 deal with the Florida Panthers. This one, a minor deal as well. Former Flames forward Zach Ronaldo's headed to Columbus on a one-year two-way deal for the Blue Jackets. He spent the last two seasons playing with Calgary and Stockton. Just another depth signing for the Columbus Blue Jackets there. Uh, you going to watch a little baseball tonight? Absolutely. You know it. I'm locked in. I'm locked in on the Jays, man. Until they fall out of the playoff race, I'm, I'm all in. Yeah, I, I got a little distracted during the Olympics, not going to lie. <laughs> I was very tuned in to watching everything Team Canada and just, 
even just the whatever sport was on. I was just tuned in to watch it. But the Blue Jays are making that push. They open a three-game set in Seattle, two and two on this road trip so far after their split with the Angels. I guess the only disappointing fact is we're not there to watch this, and it's not Blue Jays North invading Seattle. But I guess yeah, Rangers it- fans are probably happy. It will be a little different. It will be sad to see the Jays in Seattle with a crowd there and not have the the massive crowds of Blue Jays fans go nuts in the stadium. That that is going to be a little odd, disappointing. You're right. For Seattle fans, it's probably a nice perk, but it's still exciting to see the Jays come through Seattle make on their West Coast turn. I will say this. You can fly to Seattle, right? Like, you still can't cross the land border by driving, right? Like, you'll get turned away there. But you can fly into the States, right? If you're And if you're double vaccinated, you could just come right back and have a negative test well and and i'm sure there will be you know i bet the camera can find some jays fans in the crowd right whether they're transplants to washington state or whether they're people who are kind of going above and beyond doing exactly what you're saying i'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure the camera will pick up some jays fans there but it's not the same right it's so it's it's, you know there's so many more logistical hoops you have to jump through and you you couldn't have planned it in advance really because we had no idea what the border status would be so I, i i'm sure there'll be some intrepid people who make their way down but yeah it's gonna be a far cry from years past uh, CFL, the Argos are at the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Both of these teams started the season uh, 1-0. and Jamie wins. Obviously, the Bombers won at home against the Ticats, and the Argos went to Calgary and won. So, obviously, one of these teams is going to go 1-1. and The other one's going to improve to 2-0. and I'm interested to see the Bombers again. They're without Andrew Harris. They're slow playing his return to the lineup because we do know when the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are healthy with Andrew L- Harris in the lineup, they you look at that roster, it's, it's probably the best roster in the CFL. Fell, at least the most cohesive because basically everyone returned from their great yep. cup winning team two years ago so it'll be an interesting game I think this is a much tougher test for the Argos we talked about what they did against Calgary going in and winning by a field goal there but I do think this Bombers team will prove a little bit more of a just a little bit more of a measuring stick to see where this Argos team is, especially the offensive side of the ball. Well, and especially, you know, this always happens in the early stages of any season, but especially a football season, right? Because the Argos go out and beat Calgary, and it's, oh, wait, hey, man, look at the Argos. Good for them. That's a really good result for them. But then you see the performance that Calgary yeah. turns in against BC last night, and he's like, well, okay, maybe that win actually wasn't that impressive for the Argonauts. So, yeah, I, I agree. They have a tough test against Winnipeg tonight. Yeah, it should be a packed stadium. Uh, Weather looks pretty good right now, so it should be a fun time. In Winnipeg, NFL preseason, I will not be tuned in to the Cowboys at the Cardinals. I don't really care about preseason, especially for my Cowboys, because it's like, I don't know if Russell Wilson's going to play in preseason games. Uh, but Dak Prescott's not. So for me, it's just like, okay, just go out there, play the preseason, make your roster decisions. Call me when it's week one. Well, that's the thing. Does does anything for the Cowboys at this point really matter other than Dak, right? So, like, yep. unless you're – is there a reason to tune into something Cowboys unless you're getting clarity about Dak? That, that's really the question. By the way, did you, did you see that tweet earlier in the week that they released that was in, extremely cryptic and weird? Okay, like, yes. Like, what was going on there? Okay. For those that didn't see, Jamie, if I'm to say something to you, and I'm going to preface it by saying, okay, I got to tell you something. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. What's your first thought? Don't get mad. Don't get mad. It's like, okay, well, obviously you did something really bad, and I'm about to get mad. Yeah. It's either you're going to get mad, or it's actually, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. The Cowboys put out a tweet, and I, I, just to, I don't have it in front of me, but just to kind of paraphrase, it's like, everything's okay. Just wanted to let you know, like they preface it saying, just so you know, everything's okay with Dak, but he's going to get another MRI. 
Yeah, I believe specifically they said, you know, it's not a setback. There's no reason to worry, but he's going <laughs> to get an it MRI. It's like, well, is there reason to worry, though? It sounds like there might be reason to worry. Initially, my first thought was, oh, my God, seriously. First of all, why put, just say Dak Prescott's going to get another MRI to see where his shoulder's at? Like, that makes more sense to me. I guess basically when the Cowboys did address it, they don't think there's more damage to where his shoulder is. They just kind of want to see how it's healed. Yeah. So they're going to just want to get in there and take a look. Yes, but guys, like, don't put out the preface first. Like, don't put out the the um, the warning. You know, when you say like this television show has you know whatever bad yeah. language and nudity and all this kind of stuff. Like, don't well, put yeah, that, think, that yeah. out. What you just say is, you know, as part of his like his recovery is going well, and we're we're gonna do an MRI just to confirm that, right? Like that's what you say, rather than prefacing it with this weird like, okay, you know, hey, you're gonna get mad, but don't get mad kind of thing. It's almost like you know, it's we're trying to one up each other, and sports teams are trying to one up each other with creative ways to discuss things on Twitter or yeah. cl- clap back at somebody else on Twitter. Like you're you're seeing it from all these organizations and. A lot of them are really funny, and a lot of them are um, pretty creative with what these social media teams do. This one was just like, nah, you didn't need to go there. I would be a terrible, terrible social media manager for a sports (laughs) team. Because the the pressure with everything you tweet, right? If it's just a little, you know, you have some idea, and you're like, oh, it's Twitter. I'll throw this out there. And if it's a little off, oh, my goodness. All of a sudden, everyone is like, what is wrong with the Cowboys? What are they doing? And it's all your fault. I would not be good at it. No, I wouldn't want the pressure of it to just, no. yeah, like you said, like, one, I don't think I'm creative enough to... I'm absolutely not. I know I'm not creative <laughs> enough, yeah. Well, at least we know our limits, right? We know exactly yep. what job we could do and couldn't do, and some people say, we can't do this job, but hey, <laughs> it's, the, it's the one that we're being paid for. I don't know if I'd want the pressure, like you said, of trying to be creative, but also being like, oh God, did I somehow step on someone's toes and now yeah. I'm going to be, you know, my hand slapped for this one. Is the league going to be investigating us for some reason because of what I <laughs> tweeted yeah yeah not ideal not ideal uh just also just to finish up the nfl preseason if anyone cares tennessee titans take on the falcons and the bills take on the lions jamie we've done it we've made it to friday it's time to turn it over to bick in the boss hey thanks for uh thanks for the last couple weeks been fun yeah, it was my pleasure congratulations on making it to vacation i'm thrilled for you <laughs> thank you i'm very i'm pretty excited too not gonna lie i was uh checking checking the segments off as i was going on this oh yeah show. oh yeah uh, <laughs> greg greg ballock mission control big ups to greg once again thanks so much ronja shurgle he's actually on vacation he actually left our show about 90 minutes yeah i wasn't early. sure about how that works <laughs> Right? When he told us that last night, he's like, I'm producing tomorrow. Also, I go on vacation at 1130. He's like, oh, all right. I guess. I guess that works. I mean, good work if you can get it. Only yep. to have to work about 75% of the show. Congratulations to him. Uh, excellent show as always. We've had some Olympic gold medalists on this week. We've had another Olympic medalist and Evan Dunphy. We've run the gamut on sporting conversations, Jamie. It will be you and Scott Rintoul next week. I will be back with you as well on August 23rd. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the week, everybody. It's time for Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650.